So reading from Mark chapter 2. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all. So that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. All right, well, good morning and welcome. I'm Jeremy, one of the leaders here. And um, I'm going to be walking through this third week in our series in Introducing Jesus, which is really answering one simple question, and that is, why did Jesus have to die? Why is it that Jesus had to die? And so fill you in on kind of where we're going over this week, it's really just in three parts. It'll come up on the screen for you. We're just looking at the need, the answer, and the result. And if we get through those three things, we'll understand why it is that Jesus had to die, why it is that the cross is at the center of Christianity? The need, the answer, and the result. But starting with the need, I think it's, it's fair to say that probably everyone here in this room, if not just everyone in general, has one thing that they believe they need more than anything else in order to live life to the full. We started this series by looking at the idea of the pursuit of happiness, that everyone is on this pursuit, that everyone is trying to live life to the full. But seeing as it's quite difficult, I think most of us have one thing that we think stands between us and the life we should be living. And that one thing will formulate what is our deepest need. There was a movie decades ago called Amadeus, which uh, was kind of a a retelling of the story of two great composers of Salieri and Mozart, and it was fictionalized. So a lot of people who love Salieri don't love the movie because he's depicted in this movie as this brooding, jealous, you know, kind of puerile sort of uh, guy who's just incredibly jealous of the effortlessly talented Mozart. And that's, history would say that's not exactly what happened, but it's a great story. So never let, never let the truth get in the way of a good yarn. But, um, but this, this one guy, Salieri, is obsessed with being the greatest composer in the world. And he, uh, he articulates this when he talks about the, the whole thing through the movie is his relationship with God. And he, um, he says in the movie that he prays this prayer. He says, while my father prayed earnestly to God, protect commerce, I would offer up secretly the proudest prayer a boy could think of. Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and be celebrated myself. Make me famous through the world, dear God. Make me immortal. After I die, let people speak my name forever with love for what I wrote. In return, I will give you my chastity, my industry, my deepest humility every hour of my life. Amen. He believed his deepest need was to be a great composer. And if God would just answer that and would give him that, then he would promise as a trade-off to give him whatever God wanted. That was the deal. 
Now, I wonder for you, if you were to meet God, I mean, with it, just roll with the idea for a second, even if you're skeptical of the existence of a God or whatever, if you were to meet a being who had infinite resources at their disposal and who actually was supposed to love you and be out for your good, if you could ask for one thing, what would it be? Most of us have one thing that we feel stands in the way of us and living life to the full. If I just had this one thing, that relationship, that job, a house, success in my career, if I just had this one thing, if I could lock that down and keep that, I would be happy in this life. The question is, is it really our deepest need and will it fulfill us? The story that Jacob just read out before is a story addressing this very question. Because there's a man who comes to meet Jesus Having heard that Jesus can heal the sick, having heard that Jesus has incredible power, he comes to him with his deepest need, and we find that Jesus has a different opinion to him. Look at what happens in the story. Mark 2, 1-4, we read this. It says, And when he, Jesus that is, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they lay down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So Jesus is teaching in an area kind of in northern Israel uh, called Capernaum. And at this point, his ministry has gained so much momentum that people are actually following him from town to town to town to hear him teach, to see what he does. So he's got this kind of reputation. And people hear... Word gets out that he's back in town, in his hometown here in Capernaum where he'd been residing. And so there's such a massive crowd there that it completely packs out the house that he's in and even out the doors. So people are kind of peering in, maybe passing on messages so they can just hear something that Jesus is saying. And four men arrive and they've carried their friend who cannot walk. I don't know if you've thought about it even as you read the story, how difficult that would be. To carry someone, most likely on a mat, so just carrying him with your hands for miles and miles to get to meet Jesus. By the time they get there, they're probably at the point where they've they've been gripping for so long that it's almost hard to unclench their fingers. And they finally arrive with their friend who cannot walk to meet who might be the answer, Jesus, and they realize it's packed out. There's no way they can even get in. It's so packed that they can't even see or hear Jesus. Can you imagine the disappointment? But they're not to be outdone. They come up with an ingenious plan. They get up on the roof of this place. They figure, look, no no one's going to see that coming. So they get up on the roof. They build a sunroof just of their own accord. They pull apart the roof and they lower the man down in front of Jesus. And you can imagine at this point, the whole crowd is gone quiet. What is Jesus going to say? They've just smashed up his roof and dumped a guy in front of him. What is it that he's going to respond to this? And he says something that's probably quite unexpected. For us reading it now in our day, but even for them reading it then in their day, Jesus says this in Mark 2, sentence 5. It says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. So he sees their faith. They believe that Jesus is God himself. 
And we kind of looked at this claim last week. We don't have time to go into all of the claims of Jesus this week. If, if, um, if that's something you want to dig into, please dig into the podcast from last week. But here it's enough to say that Jesus, uh, they believe that Jesus is God, that he has power, that he really is the Son of God, that he is who he says he is. But then Jesus, seeing that, says to this guy, Son, your sins are forgiven. They must have been thinking, what? What is this about? Is he forgiving them for smashing up his house? Is it that in the end, Jesus is saying that this guy's greatest need is different to the one that they thought? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. I wonder how you'd feel if you were that man, having been carried miles and miles to get there, having made all this effort to finally be at the feet of Jesus, only to hear him say, son, your sins are forgiven. Would you feel ripped off? Like, man, Jesus, can't you see? Like, I had to be lowered into this room because I cannot walk. Can't, can't you see that this, that's my deepest need? What are you talking about with your sins being forgiven? But Jesus is saying that this guy's most pressing need, his most urgent need, even beyond being able to walk, is to have his sins forgiven. And we understand this concept, right? Whatever is most serious is what takes precedence. There's a, a rugby player called Julian Huxley who in March 1, 2008, during a game, went in for a tackle, was concussed, and immediately started having seizures. Uh, and so, of course, the, the sort of mandatory process is that he then has to go and get an MRI, get a brain scan um, to check that everything's okay. And during that scan, they realized that his main issue was not concussion, that he actually had a brain tumor. And at that point, he had a decision to make. He could have either said... Well, Doc, that's great, but I've got, I'm at the peak of my rugby career. Just give me some painkillers or whatever I need to get back on the field, and I'll get to it. Or he could say, that's it. Forget rugby, forget everything else. Priority number one now is brain cancer, because if I don't get that solved, then you can forget anything else. And that's exactly what he did. He made a full recovery and a return to rugby, but it was, it was reasonably obvious how he was to respond to that news. His deepest need was not to get over his headaches from the concussion or even the seizures. The main issue was the cancer. And Jesus here is saying to this man who cannot walk, look, your more, your more serious issue, the biggest issue in your life, is that you need your sin to be forgiven. Now why is that? Why would sin, this word sin take precedence over everything else, even something as serious as needing to walk? Well, sin is a relational word that describes a break in relationship with God. Sin, if you wanted to think about it this way, sin is more about breaking God's heart than breaking God's rules. In the Bible, sin is described as when there's a rupture in relationship between us and our creator God. The God who made us, who loves us, who has lovingly designed our lives. When we reject him, that's called sin. And the Bible says that everyone has sinned. In Romans 3.23, it says, going back one, just one slide back, 3.23, it says, uh, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You might say, well, I understand like, there are a bunch of people who have really strong opinions against God, who, are, who really hate God or whatever, but for the vast majority, it's, it's not so much that they hate God, it's just that it's not really a big deal. I think for me, before I came to know Jesus, I had no kind of extremely negative thoughts about God. It was just, I just couldn't see what he had to do with my life and with living the good life. But the reason it's serious is that sin isn't just about 
doing bad things against God. It's also about the good things that we neglect to do. You can think about it like this. The, in a, there was a movie years ago called The Wrestler, which if you want to feel sad and depressed, I recommend that you watch this movie. So if you're in that sort of mood, go for it. Uh, but otherwise, maybe steer clear of it. Um, but it's an it's a Aronofsky movie, if you're familiar with his kind of work. And uh, the, um, it's, got, it's got Mickey Rourke, who kind of you know, has a wrestling background, that sort of thing. And he's this, in the movie, he's depicted as this... Um, like this heaving mass of a man, but who's kind of in the twilight of his career. So he's got this, he's, he's worn out, this leathery skin. He looks like a man who's lived 40 lives, right? He's just at the end of things. And in the movie, he's a wrestler and he has a heart attack. And, um, and it causes him to rethink his life and his priorities. And he decides that he's going to go back and, and correct some of the things that he'd done that he regrets. And the main, the top thing on the list is he wants to go back and connect with his daughter. And he goes back to her and he, and he tries to kind of reinitiate this relationship with her that was kind of lost and broken. And, uh, and when he does, understandably, she resists it. And she says this to him. She says, do you want me to take care of you? So this is the idea that he tells her that he's had a heart attack. He says, what, do you want me to take care of you now? Well, I'm not going to do it. Because where the hell were you when I needed you to take care of me? You know, on all my birthdays, which you never made even one, you probably don't even know when it is. To which he responds later on. He says, I was young, my career was booming, all those lights, the fans, the crazy stuff on the road. I wasn't thinking about my kid or my wife. My priorities were all messed up. I know that, but now I want to try and make things right. The problem with his relationship with his daughter was not that he did anything bad. He didn't yell at her. He wasn't abusive. He wasn't any of those things. The problem is he wasn't there. He neglected what he should not have neglected. Sin is not just about bad things that we do. It's about the good that we neglect to do. If God is our creator and we were made for a relationship with him, then to neglect that is serious. As serious as the father who abandons his post to love his children. And it might be apathy. It might not be that we feel anything particular. But when we say, look, God, you are nothing to me, it's as if we're saying, God, you are dead to me. And the problem with this is, when we say, God, you are dead to me, he gives us exactly what we want and our relationship becomes dead to him. And the problem with that, was, with, with that is that he is the source of life and so that means we are cut off from him eternally. In Romans 6.23, it came up on the screen before, it says the wages of sin is death. When we say to God, God, you are dead to me, he gives us what we want and we are dead to him. By our actions, by our lives, we say, well, I want nothing to do with you. And he gives us what we want and we are cut off from him eternally. And so this is a major problem. And so this is why Jesus is really honest with this guy who comes before him. And he just says, your biggest need is to get your sin dealt with, this broken relationship with God. You need it forgiven and restored and made new. And I don't know about you, but I appreciate Jesus' honesty. If you, if you open up the Bible and you read any of the accounts of Jesus' life, he never pulls any punches. He always talks straight and about the things that really matter. He doesn't just say things so that people will like him. He talks about what really matters. And so I realized that talking about these kind of things on a Sunday morning might not be the most pleasant thing, the idea of sin and death and all this heavy stuff, but it does need to be talked about. Even just, I think, a couple of days ago in the Sydney Morning Herald, 
Uh, one of the authors in that, uh, Amy Malloy, wrote an article called We Young People Need to Talk About Death. And in it, she talked about struggling with the death of her husband when she was 23 years old. And she said this, After my husband died three weeks after our wedding day, even my closest friends evaporated or became stiff in my company. In the next few months, I rebelled against my grief, drinking too much, becoming promiscuous. No one dared to challenge me or raise the topics that I ached to discuss. It's been suggested that millennials are the generation most fearful of death, unlike our grandparents raised through world wars who learnt that life can be short. As medicine advances and life expectancy increases, we prefer to think of death as our future self's problem. But Jesus is straight up, and he brings up the things that are most pressing and most needful. And so in this little interaction with the paralytic, he he doesn't fluff around. He says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. That is your deepest need. That's what needs to happen. He says, I know this is heavy, but we've got to talk about it, and it's important. And so that's the deepest need. That's the need section that we're looking to. The section next is the answer. Because notice, he doesn't say that. He says to him, your sins are forgiven. That means they're taken away. And how is it that he does this? Well, look at what happens in the rest of the story. In Mark 2, 6 to 12, he says this. The story continues. Now, some of the scribes, do we have that up there, actually? Mark, Mark 2, 6 to 12. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to, him, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before all of them, and they were amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. See, some religious people get angry at this statement. As soon as Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, some religious people around there arc up because they realize that sin is a relational word in the Bible that talks about a relational break between God. And the way forgiveness works is the only way you can forgive someone is if you are the one who has been wronged. You can't step in and forgive on behalf of someone else. Forgiveness works that way. Even thinking about it in terms of just day-to-day stuff, recently we had a, and you may, this may have happened to you before, but it seems to, they seem to go in bunches, but we, we had a series of incidents where we scratched people's car accidentally. The first one was I was getting the trampoline stuff out from it for, to build a trampoline for our kids, and as I was backing out, I scratched the car behind us. It was a really nice new VW. And every time that happens, you have that moment where you're like, is it the kind of thing that would just buff out? You kind of lick your thumb and sort of wipe over and like, I think this is one where I'm going to have to leave a note. And so I did. And then less than a week later, we're in the park and we always say to our kids, when you get in the car, be really careful how you open the car doors, right? Don't be reckless, whatever it is. And, and they were, they were really careful. And then all of a sudden, the gust of wind came up, grabbed the doors and just went smack into the car next to us. I'm like, all right, that's, that's another note then. And off we go. But interestingly, so we've, we've done it every time we've dinged a car, we've left a note. And the reason for that is, even though they've been, re- they've been really small scratches or dings or whatever it is, we know that the way it works is we don't get to just forgive ourselves for the debt. 
You don't just look at it and go, well, look, I probably wouldn't, you know, I probably wouldn't call someone up on that. I'd leave it go. Or it's not even that big. They may not even notice it. Because you'd say, that's not my call to make, right? When it comes to a debt, only the person who has been wronged can decide what to do with that debt. And that's what these religious teachers are saying here. When Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, they're like, that's not your call to make. But Jesus says, yeah, it is. Because I'm God walking among you. And we don't have time again to go into the objections around Jesus' claims to be God or the miracles. Again, we, we spent a lot of time on that last week, and I'd urge you to get into that if there, there are questions you have on that. But to demonstrate that he is God, he says, look, which is harder, to say to someone your sins are forgiven or to say get up and take your mat and walk? And of course, the answer is both of those things are impossible unless you are God in human form. And so he says to the man, get up, and he walks. And he demonstrates that he has authority to forgive sins. That this is God himself interacting with a person, responding to their faith and saying to them, your sins, your debt are completely wiped away. But then the question becomes, well, how does God forgive? How does God forgive? You know, going back to the concept of of dinging cars, whenever you forgive, whether it's a relational thing or a physical debt, you take on the cost of that forgiveness, don't you? So for both those notes, when we left them, both the owners didn't ask us to actually pay for it in the end, which was very gracious of them in doing that. But that doesn't mean that there was no debt. It now just means that they take on the debt. It either means that they have to pay for the repairs to the paint, or when they resell it, they take the hit of it sort of diminishing the value of it, or they just have to bear the cost of having a car that's in less than good condition because of that. But either way, they take on the debt. When you forgive, you take on the cost of forgiveness, and it is costly. So what did it cost God to forgive? What did it cost Jesus that he could stand there before someone and just say to them, son, your sins are forgiven, they are put away. That relational debt is done with. When Mark 10.45, a little bit later on in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says this, For I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. We saw in the first week of this series when Jesus said, I came to bring life and life to the full, that he said that he was the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And this is why. The wages of sin is death, We had said, God, you're dead to me. And that means that we've brought death into the world and separation from God. And Jesus comes to die in our place, on our behalf, to pay the cost of forgiveness. That's the debt that sin accumulated. That's the debt that God takes on himself. Forgiveness requires a price. And Jesus takes it upon himself. He gives his life as a ransom for many. He died so that we might be set free. The simplest way I could describe it in explaining how this works in our relationship with God is if sin creates a break in relationship with God, if this is us and God is up there, sin is this blockage between us and him. And when Jesus comes to die on the cross, he takes our sin upon himself so that we are set completely free. So that he can say to the paralyzed man, your sin is put away, it's done and it's dealt with, all because Jesus has died for him. This is the reason that Jesus came to die. This is the reason Jesus had to die. We see that there was the need, which is our sin, the answer, which is the cross. And then lastly, we get to the result. What is the result of knowing Jesus? 
I mean, for the paralyzed man, he walks again. But for many of us, that's not our main issue. What does it look like after we've had our sin forgiven? What does life look like afterwards? And it looks like this. It means being restored to relationship with your God and Creator. Years ago, I watched a, a documentary called um, Ring of Fire, and it was, uh, it was uh, talking about the... It was, it was following the life of one man, Emil Griffith, who was a, um, uh, a boxer, a professional boxer. But the reason his story is significant is not so much because of his win-loss record, but because he was the first man to actually kill another man in the ring in boxing. In, uh, in March of 1962... Uh, there was a fight organized between him and a man called Benny Perret. And Benny Perret wasn't a particularly good fighter. He was, uh, he was what was known as a bleeder, which was meant that, that he, could, he could fight for a long time without getting KO'd, um, but he wasn't particularly good. And the reason bookies wanted to organize fights with bleeders like Benny Perret is because if the fights go longer, people would place more bets. And so it's pretty profitable as a bookie. But Emil, Emil Griffith was in every way a superior fighter. And so this wasn't going to be a win for him. It was mostly going to be a windfall for the bookies. But um, there was a certain amount of tension between these two men before the fights. As there often is, there's a, you know, a little bit of banter between fighters before a bout. But a few of the things that Benny Perret had said were sort of you know, racial and, and kind of identity slurs against Emil Griffith. And so when they got into the ring, there was genuine animosity between them. And the fight continued for 12 rounds. But in the 12th round, Griffith had Perret up against the rope and just hit him with a series of blows, one after the other. Bang, 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 bang. And by the end of the fight, Perret was left dead in the ring. And boxing was banned, and it was a long time before professional boxing was allowed to be fought again in the United States. But the documentary then tracks the life of Emil Griffith after that significant fight. And after that fight, his life completely fell apart. He really hardly ever boxed again. He was a shadow of a man. Even when he, the bouts that he did fight were nothing like before. It seemed like it had taken the wind out of him completely. But even interviewing him, he was tortured by nightmares of what happened. He just could not get it out of his head that he'd taken the life of another man. That he'd taken away a husband and a father. But the documentary, right towards the end, tracks the first time that Emil Griffith meets Benny Perret Jr. So Benny Perret's son. And Emil Griffith is incredibly nervous about this meeting, understandably, because he's going to be thinking, look, what is this, what is this guy going to think of me? Like, I'm the reason that his dad hasn't been around. You know, is, is, does he hate me? Will he want to hurt me? Will he want to kill me? What is he going to do? And when they meet, they meet in a public place in a park, and they stand about a metre and a half apart when they meet. And the first person to speak is Benny Perret Jr. And he says to Emil Griffith, I just want you to know, and my mother wants you to know, that there are no hard... And before he can say hard feelings, Emil Griffith wraps him up in a massive bear hug and just starts to cry. Now, why is it that a champion boxer would be reduced to tears by someone saying there are no hard feelings? Because forgiveness, when it's real, when a real debt has been taken away, is absolutely life-changing. This is the forgiveness that Jesus offers when he says to this paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven, he's saying that that debt between you and God is completely washed away. You are now in new and restored relationship with God forever. You are forgiven, set free. There is now nothing, no debt that anyone can hold against you, no matter who you are or what you have done. If God has set you free, then you are free indeed. This is why in the Bible, in John 3.16... 
it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him will not die but have eternal life. This is the love of God that he sent Jesus to die on our behalf to pay our debt, to win our forgiveness, that you might be restored to relationship with him forever. Timothy Keller, one author, puts it this way. When you understand the cross correctly, we understand that we are more sinful... Yeah, it'll come up there for you. That we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe. And yet at the same time, we are more loved than we ever dared hope. That is the truth of the gospel. When you come to know Jesus, you realize you are more sinful than you ever dared believe. And yet more loved than you ever dared hope. Is an eternal and abiding love that Jesus offers that he died for. That's the need, the answer, and the result. We're going to look at a testimony of one of the members here at City Light and how it is that she came to know this abiding love and forgiveness in Jesus.